Oh no, you were the bad guys all along. Welcome to House of Bards. Um, we are a podcast about shared narrative in role-playing games, the sort of airy-fairy, wishy-washy end of the tabletop role-playing spectrum, and how that is really fun. Mm-hmm. So this week, we are going to talk about villains. Bad guys, rotten sods. Dirty, rotten scoundrels. Antagonists in general. Mm-hmm. Um... So where do we where do we start with villains? I mean, honestly? I think there's an important distinction to make between mechanical villains and narrative villains, because mechanical villains are this would be a cool monster to fight, and narrative villains are you know what we're going to be talking about a bit more probably. Uh, in that they they um, actually get all the the gears of the actual antagonism of the antagonist. Yeah. Like running. Uh-huh. Like, ter- like a Tarasque is a neutral creature. It's not evil by any means, but it is a mechanical villain because they're formidable I think villains. that really comes under the heading of a monster. Yeah. In which, like, that, sometimes yeah. that can that can bleed into um, villains mm. mechanically. But I think um, really what we're talking more about is sentient, generally sapient beings mm. who, for some reason, are attempting to... Um, antagonize or work against the heroes of the story, which in this case would be the party. Yeah. And who those people could be, mm-hmm. what their motivations are, and you know what the, their powers could be. And even, players listening, if you could be one. Yes, yes, that is also a thing that we're going to talk about. We're going to yeah. talk about player characters as antagonists. Should be fun. So, what motivates a villain? I think there are a number of things, mm. and it depends on how far you want to go into this. Um, something I think that we would encourage as part of uh, shared narrative is that in order for your players really to have the freedom of the narrative, the narrative itself has to stand up, which means that complex villains who antagonize for internally consistent reasons, rather than like Saturday morning cartoon villains, will often be better if you're going to set them up over a long period of time. Mm. Because then your players have a lot of options about how to interact with that character. Um, <clears throat> rather than, like, say, for instance, they can't be reasoned with because their motivation doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah, they need to have... Which, they kind of, In a weird way, they kind of need to create, <laughs> sometimes, not all the time, a bit of conflict between the party. I think those are really good villains, but it can be difficult to strike that Unless you're tailoring a villain specifically for the party. Yeah, I think so. When we talk about motivations for villains, obviously, the most obvious one is is like just a general sense of evil. Yeah, like evil for its own sake. Yeah, which is not incredibly deep. You're not going to go very far with a a villain like that. There is one notable exception, and I will probably talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um. But honestly, when it comes down to it, most villains don't think that they're villains. Yeah. Like, a lot of, of evil characters don't actually think that they're evil. Mm. They think that, you know, 
they think that they're doing good or they're doing something or, that's good or it might not be a completely even in cases where they do think that they're evil yeah generally they will think that they have become evil for a reason that yeah justifies can't can't be changed yeah the means justify the end yeah or, or even this is uh, oh i'm so bad but it's because of this thing and now yeah. i'm completely disillusioned with, yeah. with stuff everybody is evil that kind of thing yeah like you you don't often get like evil people who will who will admit that they are evil people because nobody really does that mm. Pe- people have intentions that are inherently either good or what they believe can be good yeah like even the biggest shitheads in the world will always try and justify and rationalize their evil actions that's what you do and if you can't yeah. rationalize them then you've presumably probably thought like, about that before you did them and then yeah. you don't do them it's mm. yeah so when you get beyond that point um the next most obvious motivator is hate yeah like hate is honestly almost as base as evil and the only real difference is that hate does actually turn up as a motivator for people we would consider villains in real life yeah uh, it's not the only motivator for such people, but no. you think, like, there are a number of historical figures who are seen to have been motivated by hate and have done things that are very in keeping with what we consider a villain to be. Yeah. And the problem with that is it's good for setting up an environmental villain. Yeah. Like, a villain whose villainy, or like a country, maybe, or a faction whose opposition to other maybe more amiable factions or people is already established like hate's good for that but it honestly you can't take it anywhere yeah like villains who have hatred as their motivation they're good for world building because you can show this sort of a person has prejudices against this type of people absolutely um but even then you're you're gonna run into like world building places where you're going to want to explain why yeah so it's difficult for this to remain as base as it really seems it would be. Yeah. But, like, I think if, if you want to go for a very simplistic plot with a very simplistic villain, you should pick hatred as a, as a motivator. Yeah. Because, um, well, think, why, why do we keep making games and films and literature set in the Second World War? Because, like, well, the Nazis are, I suppose, one of the... Most the closest real life examples we're ever get going to get to true evil. Yeah, that's the closest we can get to like black and white morality. Yeah, where you you can you can look at at this concept of like you know state fascism and just aggressive expansionism, and you think this is not good. Yeah. For anybody we can relate to in this in this situation, mm-hmm. and it's also not like irrelevant to anybody we can relate to in this situation. Yeah. It's it would be almost comically like. Um, cliche were it not a thing that actually happened so i think that that kind of thing does show that it will simplify the story a lot if you can remove the uh potential for interference in the motivations of your villain and if that's the case then you should choose hatred just because it's easy but what are some other motivators money greed greed is is one yeah Uh um Greed is arguably also a motivator for villains that turns up a huge amount in real life. It's not incredibly interesting. It mostly because it does get used a lot, and we've retread it a lot. And honestly, the only thing that makes greed more interesting 
than hatred as a motivation is that it's fluid. Yeah. It's not absolute because it's not wrong for humans and human analogs to want to acquire resources. No. Especially if they don't have any. Yeah. Like that's that's what poverty is. Yeah. So you have to try and look at that and see where the barrier point is between being self-sufficient and amassing resources for the sake of taking them away from other people. Mm. Like, like we would generally agree, there is, you know, once you get, like, well, most, like, working, like, most non one percent. Oh yeah, by the way, this is, is probably going to get, like, a lot heavier than the album image that I have chosen might imply, just because yeah. we're going to have to get into talking, like, a conversation about why people do bad things, which yeah. is not completely irrelevant to the real world as it stands, and politics and whatnot. Yeah. Anyway. We would agree that, you know, like the majority of, you know, working class and maybe even middle class folks and maybe even some upper class people, if you're listening, um, would agree that there is an amount of money that is enough. Right. And when you have enough money, wanting more than enough money is a bit greedy. I think maybe it, it works better to model it as a relationship between the person and their environment. But yeah. yes, like that amount will probably be fluid, but there is probably a threshold at which you become financially stable. Yeah. Like we, we would agree that, you know, a billionaire probably doesn't need any more money than what they already have. When you get to the point where you are starting to like you're trying to find contrived ways to spend your money yeah possibly you have amassed too much money so yeah greed is definitely a motivator um it's generally a pretty safe one Mm. to to do narratively because even those of us who do practice it are generally are aware that it's that it's wrong Mm. and actually something that's relevant to this um i was asked a while ago um do you think it is possible for a uh for an evil country as portrayed in systems like D&D actually to exist. And I was like, well, cosmic forces that govern our morality don't exist. So how, how would you define a country that considers itself evil? And if what I eventually came up with was, well, it, it would have to be a nation that teaches some principle as a fundamental tenet, but then has an entire culture devoted to contravening that principle. And then I thought, oh shit, it's us. <laughs> because you, you're taught like all the time in like in like school and as a kid and like in a lot of our media that greed is wrong. Yeah. And we're given pretty decent examples of what it constitutes. Yeah. And yet we do it all the time. Oh yeah. In huge amounts, like it's, it's a major problem. It's not even just like the UK, but I immediately, you know, think, wow, you know, many other countries in the world. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I wasn't limiting it to, to just us. I think there's there's quite a number of countries that that have this yeah, issue. Absolutely, like I, you know, I'm not I'm not going to name any because some of them are very powerful and and have spies everywhere. America, um, and you know, I'm not I'm not going to put myself out there. <laughs> oh, it's, it's you not saying it, not me. Yeah. Uh, so what else is there? Well, um. I think beyond that, you have control. Hmm. Control as a motivator is very, very, very fluid because yeah. it can mean a huge number of different things. It can key into greed. Hmm. Like there have been suggestions that um, a lot of greed-based villains also work as control-based villains just hmm. because the reason why 
they amass huge amounts of resources is because they are made uncomfortable by the lack of control associated with lesser forms of wealth. Yeah. Which is honestly something that they should probably work on in their own time yeah, rather than just yeah. depriving everybody else of, of the resources that they need. But yeah. that's what but, makes them a bad guy. Yeah. Um, like, I'm kind of thinking about, like, the Kingpin from Daredevil. Um, like, if you've read the comics, he's normally, con- like, his primary motivation tends to be monetary greed. And I need this money because. And then when you get into the Netflix TV series, it's purely about control and being able to control the sort of chaotic nature of Hell's Kitchen and their denizens, therefore. And it's about, I need to have control of this. And it makes sense with this character's backstory of why maybe he wants a lot of control in his life because he didn't have it when he was younger. Yeah, well, a lot of the, of the motivation for... Well, a lot of the, the foundation of a control-based motivation is some kind of consequence that might arise or is believed that it might arise from the lack of control. Mm. Um, I'm not actually really comfortable thinking of, of like real-life analogues of this, but yeah, um, fair enough. dictators and, and, and people like that. Um, you might be able to think of specific uh, dictators from history who might have had a problem with this. Mm-hmm. Um is that that kind of thing, and I think that kind of ties in to probably I think the most nuanced motivation, which is fear. Mm. I love fear-based villains because <sighs> they are so relatable. You can look at them and you can see exactly how that person has become a villain, which is sometimes difficult to do with villains with other motivations. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, in Dawn Somber. Uh, both Galliena and Torak are fear-based villains. And they're also control-based villains. Yeah. Because there's a very, like, strong connection between the, those two things. So, uh, as a background, um, Captain Torak was a some horrible creature from the deep, disguised as a sea captain who was uh, getting a, a load of, of undead, drowned individuals and marrow and shark men or whatever to, to attack... Um, Port Thomas, the floating pirate city uh, in Dawn Summer. You will remember this, Beth. I do remember this, yeah. Um, and you guys killed him pretty quick, so yeah. it was possibly difficult for you to, to yeah. get a hold of, of what it was that, that was his reason for doing that. But basically, what, what happened was that the, the Mer, there was a sect of the Mer people who had gained the ability to see the future, and what they were afraid of was that Port Thomas was like the first floating city of its type. And they were like, we absolutely have to make sure that this doesn't become a thing. Yeah. Because control of the sea is going to be taken away from us. It'll be the like herald of just a continual cycle of abuse of the sea and stuff like that. So, so they were afraid of losing um, control and determination over their environment. Similarly, Galliena wants to do some pretty fucked up things. Mm-hmm. But she has a fear-based reason for wanting to do them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Galliena is the first elf in thousands of years to have control of the old magic, and she is sometimes heralded as as like a, an anomaly, and sometimes as like the first step, the missing link to the elves regaining the power over the old magic. And she, she's like, I don't think this is something that elves as a whole are ever going to stop wanting, and I am terrified of the consequences of them getting it. Mm. 
so like she decides like there's nothing else i can do i have to murder all the elves in the world mm. including myself yeah but like that that is a extreme response but it's still a fear-based one Absolutely, because yeah. like it's it's not she's not doing that thing for personal gain she's doing it to avert what she perceives as a terrible consequence of not doing it and i think that kind of villain is the easiest to understand because i think a fear-based villain is the kind of villain that each and every one of us could most likely become yeah as soon as you're like in a position where there is something you are deathly afraid of happening and you have the power to prevent it then you're running into a position where you're very quickly going to come to maybe understand that um some extreme idea that you thought of might be justified and it's very dangerous it happens to real people mm-hmm. um you know not actually comfortable talking about uh, real life examples of that either but no. uh, some of the sharper of you might pick up what i'm alluding to here um i do intend to maybe talk about that uh, more somewhere else yeah <clears throat> um spite is oh, yeah is a motivation for if if your villain is merely an unpleasant this doesn't work for like really big villains but for just a minor antagonist spite is excellent you'll remember if you listened to the last episode that Joseph Navybeard was not really a villain but he was an antagonist to Dragax because out of basically spite over being upset he was like well I'm not gonna help you at all yeah I'm going I'm not going to hinder you but I'm not going to give you the information that you need even though now that you've told me this thing, I have basically no reason to do to like be silent, other than the fact that I don't like what you're doing. If you're gonna make spite a motivation for a major antagonist, look at Maleficent from the Sleeping Beauty movie because she, you know, you've got to go like balls to the wall. You've got to make sure that you know they are the master evil overlord of everything and that like the only reason they're doing it that like the only reason they haven't leveled the kingdom before now is because they've never had a reason to basically until the king doesn't invite you to the christening of his daughter <laughs> look also at 11 and 12 year old draco malfoy yes although although i would argue there was another little different motivator in there but yeah spite Definitely. Yeah, yes, Beth, we all know obviously. about your theories about the motivations of Draco Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think like when the stakes are pretty low in like the the first two books, Draco Malfoy is a pretty good example of a spite-focused villain. Yeah. Just because a lot of the stuff that he does is incredibly petty. Yeah. But it he is. does it He's because really petty little shit, doesn't he? It's... Yeah, and th- I think the the biggest problem you're going to run into with making spite-based villains like big bads is that they're going to be petty. Yeah. They're probably going to be like really pathetic people. Yeah. <laughs> just because that's not a great. As a motivator, it doesn't scale well yeah. unless the person is just really pathetic. Yeah. You've got, you know, you've got two choices with spite motivated villains. You've got Draco Malfoy at 11 or Maleficent, and there's no real in between. Hmm. Yeah. Now, there are a couple more motivations that at least we can think of. Um,. Which I did think about not mentioning, but I suppose if somebody else thinks of them and tries to bring them up, it might be good to uh, to to shit them down now. Um, 
A motivator that a lot of people use, particularly for chaotic evil villains, uh, is insanity. Yeah. The thing is, like, as a podcast made by two neuroatypical people, mm. we're not really going to recommend that you do that. Mm. I know I certainly, I, I definitely wouldn't. I mean, even I would argue in comic books, especially in Batman comic books, the reason it's so overused is due to sort of that weird grimdark period that happened in the 80s where Batman became sort of dark and grim, which is fine. But before then, you know, the Joker, who I think is a shining example of this trope of um, evil equals insanity, um, is he was more a playful comedic villain and his games were more monetary and he was just a wacky clown themed villain. And then obviously the year he's happened and he, he shot Barbara Gordon and killed Jason Todd and lots of other horrible things. And it was sort of like he kind of crossed the moral event horizon and they went, OK, well, why is he doing this then? And it kind of became more about his obsession with Batman and his sort of apparent lack of morality and his kind of antisocial um, disorder tendencies, which is unfortunate. And then all of the bad guys in Gotham were inexplicably insane. Even Bane, who totally has legit normal reasons for what he does. Yeah, it's concerning. Yeah. The thing is, real talk for a moment, if you're going to use this as a villain motivation, you are stigmatizing the mentally ill. You are, yeah. Like, there's no nuance between those two concepts. They are the exact same thing. Yeah. I and mean, I'm not really going to support you in doing that. Yeah, Sorry. And, and, I mean, there are ways you can kind of... You can be sympathetic towards certain villains. Harley Quinn gets quite a lot of sympathy thrown on her. Cause it does not mean... She's oh, essentially no, got bad person syndrome. You know, uh, yeah, I, I, I should have, I should have been more it. clear. This doesn't mean that you can't make a villain who is mentally ill and whose mental illness interacts with them having another separate villain motivation. Yeah. Like, because real people do that. Yeah. Like, it's just the whole thing of like, oh, they're crazy, so they do yeah. evil things. It's yeah. like, no. It, yeah. That is that is actually really, really harmful, and it creates weird, false impressions in the public consciousness if you do it a lot. I imagine that you probably, as a DM somewhere, won't have a huge amount of media reach beyond, like, the four to six people at your table. Yeah. But it's still a habit it's good not to get into, because... The, be the change you, know, you want to adopt. see in the world, people. Mm. <laughs> um... It's also, the difficult thing about that kind of villain is that they are pretty much just as one-dimensional as, like, hatred-motivated villains, are, or even yeah. evil-for-evil's-sake-motivated villains. They're basically a um, an excuse to get to evil-for-evil's-sake. Yeah. Um... And there is, there, there is like, a, um, a metatext there for what makes this scary as villainy is that we can't understand it. Yeah. But I feel that there are ways that that can be done that don't just spread weird lies about like illnesses and disabilities and neurotypes that people actually have mm. and live with every day and in the large majority are more likely to be victims of the depicted crimes than the perpetrators mm. um, or, or rather than like uh, mentally healthy people. Yeah. Which is it's fucked up. It's the exact wrong way around. But anyway, um, the other motivation that I have, which I think I, ha I would have a very similar uh, warning for, is political extremism. Mm, yeah. Now, I mean, this is good in that, like, it's one of the most believable 
villain yeah. motivators. Political yeah. extremism, honestly, I think he's into most of the people we would call villains in yeah. real life. Even like the hatred-motivated uh, ones or the spite-motivated ones. Well, maybe not spite-motivated ones, but like any villain on a large scale in real life is probably going to have some kind of political agenda. Mm. That said, and I get the feeling that quite a lot of you are going to figure out what I'm trying to say here. There is a difference between setting up a villain with an in-universe relevant politically extremist view that causes them to do evil things and setting up an evil for evil's sake villain with a mask of like a really ham-fisted analogy for a form of political extremism in real life that you yeah. don't like. Mm. Uh Good I get what you're trying to do, yeah. but don't do that because yeah. it makes the whole game really unfun for everybody. Yeah, you know, don't get anvilicious, okay? Uh, especially if it's anvilicious with no good reason. But if some anvils need to be dropped, drop them. Um, <laughs> and other things that sense. Beth just says. And 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 an anvil in this context means um, moral message or an ASOP. Yeah, and it's kind of difficult in that, like, all art is inherently political, and yeah. yours will be no exception, even though your audience is going to be tiny. Yeah. But please don't do the please don't do the thing where like your villain is like this really obviously like um, masked allegory for something that you yeah. don't like in real life. Yeah. Especially like, if that thing would be controversial, unless yeah. you're actually prepared to unmask that and properly explore it. And I think you really have to have a very specific kind of party for that, who are all in on it from the start. Because otherwise, you're basically just introducing this controversial and uncomfortable subject into a public space where it doesn't belong. Yeah. Um... As far as like keeping your party together goes, I would not recommend doing that. Yeah, like... I'm kind of reminded of that one really bad Powerpuff Girls episode with the like straw feminist character that even Lauren Faust regrets doing because the female character, the, the feminist quote unquote character in it makes like no sense. It's a super preachy episode. Even when I was watching it at six, I was like, Lauren Faust, this is weird. Um, and it, you know, it is super weird. Like, I'm very much unaware of like the actual content of this episode, but what yeah. little I have seen of what Beth's referring to, it is really weird. It, it, yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's the people who've seen the episode will know the things I'm talking about. But it, it kind of, you know, when you portray an almost utopian, unsexist society, and then you drop a straw feminist into it, she's always going to look like a straw feminist, basically, because what's she complaining about? men and women are equal um in this fictional society so you've got to be careful with that well that's 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 also something to think about does your villains motive do your villains motivations actually make any sense yeah in the environment they exist in uh-huh. like i think that's the same problem that you're going to have with player characters oh yeah it's just from the other direction mm. but it's something that you as the dm will generally have control over so it makes sense to have villains who maybe have political motivations based on what you've decided the politics of this universe are, 
or maybe if you don't think there's any particularly um, aggressive politics in this universe, which, you know, fair play to you, not everybody wants to deal yeah. with that, yeah. maybe your villain has some kind of greed motivation associated with power, which yeah. sort of, you know, goes into... Everything comes back to power in the end, it basically. Does. Because think... even if power isn't your end goal, it's going to be the means to your end. Mm. I think maybe, of course, with the exception of revenge. Revenge is a funny one because it can also be a heroic motivation. This is true, but revenge also keys through power because obviously does, if yeah. you don't have the power to exact your revenge, then you aren't going to get anywhere. Mm. And We're not necessarily talking about political power here. No, no. Um, we can talk about political power. We can talk about uh, monetary power. In settings like this, we can literally just talk about like magical power. Yeah. Just straight stopping power. Yeah. That kind of thing. Like, if, you know, if you're a trained... If this villain is a trained assassin who has been trained from birth and then got fucked over by the people who were training her and she decides to kill everyone and the heroes of the tale have to stop this trained assassin from killing everyone, that counts as power. The power to kill counts as a power. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the thing about power is that it's such a fluid concept. It Mm. describes relationships between people and yeah. groups of people, and the appropriate amount of... Let's talk about this in terms of Magic the Gathering. Yeah. There is a concept, not only in Magic the Gathering, but in basically all like related um, card games, called Card Advantage, where the basic idea is that having more cards in your hand than your opponent makes you more powerful, because you have... Like, even if both of you are going to cast the same number of spells with, like, roughly the same, like, level of of power, you have more options. And because you have more options, you're more able to, uh, like, roll with what your opponent is going to do. So that's always better. And most power-based relationships are like that. It's not just just straight mashing two forces of power together. It's also, like, the more things that I can do in relation to you and either stopping or eliciting what i particularly want you to do or not do um that's the more power i have so yeah that 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 can be that can be the 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 thing because of that any and all villains are going to have to interact with power at some point even if it's not their end goal even if it's the exact opposite of their end goal they are going to have to like thread through it And in, in many cases, it is their end goal. It's it's They just pick their particular brand of power that they want, and then they just go to try and accumulate it. Mm-hmm. So I said earlier that there was an exception in the kind of games that we're talking about to the evil-for-evil's-sake villains. So I should probably explain what that is. I try to very much limit in Dawn Somber the concept of inherently evil beings. I don't like inherently evil beings. I especially don't like inherently evil beings who are inherently evil for apparently no reason. Like, a lot of of older uh, D&D settings will talk about, and Tolkien as well, from whom all of this stems, and if you you actually go and look it up, you will find that Tolkien himself had misgivings about this concept. Mm. Orcs being inherently evil. Which actually makes more sense in Tolkien's work than it does in a lot of his derivatives. Yeah. Is it's fucked up, and I don't like it. I especially don't like D&D orcs being inherently evil, because in most cases, they are just normal, sapient beings. Yeah. 
There's no, there's nothing weird or spooky about their inherent evilness. All that of hobgoblins, all that of, of goblins. Now, I can believe that culturally, they just tend to have a lot of maybe very violent um, motivations that are at direct odds with the people around them. And that just means that in general, they're going to be evil. But the idea of them all inherently being evil really doesn't sit right with me. So the exception is when that being has been literally created to be evil. Yeah. Uh, now this obviously applies to robots. It does. Um, and other types of, of construct. Um, and undead, mm. obviously. Uh, although not all undead, it will depend on the, the form of, of creation of the undead. But most undead, that will be the case. And also in Dawn Somber, um, anything divinely created... I mean, not not everything that's divinely created, but anything that is divinely created has the potential to be basically a vanilla block of a particular piece of morality, just because that was what it was created to do. Um, and probably the biggest manifestation of this in Dawnsumber at the moment is the Dragon Triumvirate. Yeah. There's these three dragons. Unlike all other dragons except the first dragon ever, they were just created by Skedrenth, the god of dragons to fuck shit up and they are just all unequivocally uh, unequivocally uh, un fuck unquestionably um sure whatever uh they are just all evil uh in a slightly different way astronax is chaotic evil Resterex is lawful evil and jacarax is neutral evil but they are all single-mindedly devoted to the particular concept that drives them as evil like, they're never not going to be that. And I think that's the one out. If you have a being that is capable of creating other beings, then the other beings it creates can have just, like, blanket solid morality all the way through with, with no nuance. So that goes for gods, and it also goes for, like, anybody capable of creating constructs or robots or undead or whatever. That's fine. It's just the idea of... like cause The thing is, when you see those kinds of, of beings occurring in the wild, like, you know, um, wild orcs and, and hobgoblins, whatever, and you're just like, well, you know, they're evil because they just are. That quickly ruins the verisimilitude for me because what b becomes immediately apparent to me is, is that's bullshit, that would never happen. So we are seeing this story from a specific perspective. Yeah. And... Maybe that's what you're going for, but there are better ways to tell that story than from the word of the DM. Mm. Or, or at least from the word of the DM as presumed to be an objective view of the of the setting. I have never actually played uh, any kinds of games uh, in this setting, so I don't know exactly how much it, it holds up. But from what I've seen, I think Warhammer 40k is really on board with this, mm. with the idea that you could have the game be from a very clearly wrong perspective that just sort of, like, blanket moralizes everything. Mm. And it looks really fun, actually. <laughs> but it, it's quite obvious. You look at it and you're like, well, this is more nuanced than this, and the people with all the power are just sort of, like, forcing a square peg into a round hole to yeah. keep it not nuanced. Um, which is... Very interesting. Like, there is merit in playing a game like that, but I don't like it when it's just a sort of accepted thing that, oh, well, you know, orcs are inherently evil because they're orcs. And I'm like, well, why? I don't believe... Like, sometimes I will play a character who wouldn't question that. Very often, I think, I will play characters who, for a variety of reasons, would, as soon as they get to a point where 
it's not advantageous to them universally to kill these beings. Yeah. Like, uh, there's an age-old question. It's it's like the uh, the baby goblin question. It's it's like are baby orcs and goblins and whatever who don't really have any experience of the world inherently evil. Hmm. I mean, to me, especially in Dungeons and Dragons, once you throw in things like half orcs, it becomes a really grey area because does that mean that in a world where orcs are inherently evil, humans then disrupt the like evil gene? Well, I I think generally the way it's swung is that then they will actually collapse it back and say, no, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. And because half-orcs are either, like, in one or culture or the other, then that that culture will uh, define what they believe, what they do. It's the same deal with half-elves, even though it's not really related to morality there. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's basically... I'm cool with the idea of having tribes of orcs and hobgoblins who can't be reasoned with because none of the things that they want are concessions that the people you consider the heroes can provide. That's fine. But to say, oh, they're evil just because they are, I'm like, well, yeah. no. I think sometimes the people will say, well, you, you know, you, you're reading into this too much. And I'm like, well, maybe. But the thing about that kind of portrayal is that it instantly makes me uncomfortable because yeah. you, it, you know it's not true. Yeah. It's not true about anything. And it's actually been used in like really gross ways over history to just like stigmatize certain groups of people. And at the point where you look at that, you think this is propaganda. Yeah. So instantly when that happens in a game, I'm like, wait, hang on. Why the shit is there propaganda in my D&D? Yeah. Like these people aren't even real. Why am I getting propagandized? The thing about propaganda in games is it's a cool storytelling tool so the players should know when they're being propagandized to. Yeah. It's okay if the characters don't know, but the players should know because them being in on it is the important factor. Mm. This is also, by the way, the reason Alex has a problem with Drow. Um, yeah. Which yeah, I believe we've are, talked about before. There but, are uh, no no Drow whatsoever in Dawn Somber yeah. because I'm like, no, no, that's gross. Please don't do that. Yeah. I mean, there are other reasons. The one of the other reasons being that I don't like the concept of the Underdark. Yeah. Um. But no, it's 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 like drow. These dark-skinned women-ruled elves. Are they women-ruled? They w- women-ruled matriarchal. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, and then the, you know, the fact that they're all like they're all evil, and yeah. there's one notable exception. It even says this in the fucking. Player's Handbook, and it's like, you're just openly admitting that every single good drow is basically a Kirby. Yeah. And that does not sound fun to play. No. I mean, maybe in an evil campaign, but then you'd all probably be drow or durgar because you'd be underground. Yeah. It's, I don't, I don't like how lazy the drow are. Yeah. As a concept, and I don't like how much Wizards keeps trying to, like, force it and it gets more and more uncomfortable the more they like chip away at the unambiguous cartoonism of it all yeah i don't know i personally would love to see wizards get rid of drow entirely or at least merge drow into elves as a race yeah and so it's just that they're like just um, like they have a bit of a different culture guys and that's it's fine if they if they live in a different culture and it's fine if that culture is like unpalatable to service at surface elves 
because you know that's a lot of stuff that does happen in in real life. I mean, certain that... people's cultures have things that you consider weird and maybe even scary. Yeah, I mean, there are places in the world where cannibalism, for example, is an accepted practice that people do, and mm-hmm. matriarchal societies are an accepted thing that people do. There are some cultures in the world that would find uh, cremation a concept that we generally do not have too much of a problem with to be like utterly horrifying. Yeah. And being fair, that would generally tie into like religious practices involving yeah, yeah. like the sanctity of the wholeness of the body and stuff like that. But it's not cultural difference is a good driving factor for antagonism, if not villainy. Yeah. But obviously, as I've said before, you know, know what you're doing, because if you take it too far, it's going to become like really weird and uncomfortable. It's going to become racist. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm dropping it. It's not going to become If you really fuck it up, it will definitely become racist. That will happen. Yeah. Um, But also just, like, before you even get there, it's going to start becoming, like, people will be at the table, like, we, I don't really want to be telling this story. Yeah. This does not seem to be a fun thing to play. Yeah. Like, these are real questions that are asked about real people's lives presented in a, a proxy of, like... Elves and orcs and whatever, and that's usually cool. But in this particular case, I don't know the answer, and that makes me scared. Yeah. And that's not to say that games should never touch on those kinds of subjects. Yeah, I know but... that there's um I can't remember the game in particular, but there is an extra credits episode about this that you should really watch. Yeah. And what they go into is that there's a supplement for the World of Darkness game Wraith. Hmm that deals with some really, really fucked up shit. And it's fine if you want to have an environment to discuss that stuff, and obviously yeah. your villains are going to be a lot more real in that yeah. in that particular environment, because then you're getting really hard into the fact that there are no villains. Mm. There are just people who are prepared to do things for reasons that you don't agree with. And maybe you don't agree with the things either. That's, if I think, what we're, we're coming down to here. That we... There's no such thing as villains. Yeah. Not really, no. Not not really. There are antagonists, and that's a better word for them, because it doesn't imply anything about them. Mm. They just antagonise. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I think... Generally, I, I should... This is getting very dark. This will not generally be a problem. I am absolutely sure that you will be able to come up with a series of villains for your setting that will fit into the environment who will have motivations that actually make sense in the setting that you've defined and who generally like we, we've already laid out what are safe safe places to go yeah like hate fear if you want to be a bit edgy uh control and greed are all cool and for minor villains spite is great as well like those are all great motivations and they allow the well here's the thing why should a villain have a motivation? Mm. Generally, the reason why is because then, once you know what motivates a villain, you know what that villain cares about. Yeah. What that villain is prepared to do in order to achieve their goals, generally. Yeah. And that means that you can improvise. You, you can make up what that villain is going to do mm. as they react to the players interacting with them. And of course, for the kind of role-playing that we like on this podcast, that's really important for yeah. all characters. So, obviously, villains are no exception. I mean, you know, a villain can have a perfectly reasonable motivation to a player character. Like, I don't know, 
I want to kill all the elves, for example. Well, that I'm was the thing about Galliena, was that all four of you yeah. had drastically different opinions about Galliena, what she wanted to do, why she wanted to do it, and what she was prepared to do in pursuit of it. It was really incredibly interesting that was, yeah. that split the party entirely. Yeah. You had um, Silas, who took a weirdly sympathetic approach. Like Silas wasn't sympathetic to... Galliana's motives, situation. but he was, he was very sympathetic to her means. Yeah. Like, basically, there was... If, if you went into her story and just sort of lifted out the accumulation of power, like the methodology she'd worked out for that, he was on board with that. Yeah. Whereas Jay and Balasar were on, like, opposing sides of the question around her actual motivation, weren't they? Yeah. When you have something like that, and you have a villain who actually relates very strongly to a character, it can be very easy to kind of see how your character could kind of go down a bit of a dark path and join up with the bad guys or align themselves with dark forces. Whether they agree with that villain exactly or they agree with a different villain who opposes that villain. Which I mean, we haven't even gotten to battling villains, which is maybe a story. Oh, yeah. From, yeah. Well, no, I think it's very relevant here because, of course, you get into the concept of, okay, villains don't exist, so that means there aren't, like, the good side and the bad side. Mm. There are multiple groups of people with multiple different motivations that are going to clash all the time. Yeah. And I think that's excellently uh, represented in what you folks are currently doing. Yeah. In Varash with the multiple different factions. Um, So... Yeah, player characters as villains. Yeah. I mean, there's always starting out evil, obviously. Um, starting out evil generally, I think, works best if you make that decision as a group at the beginning that the whole yeah. party's going to be evil and you're going to play an evil campaign. Yeah, although I did once play a game with someone who was evil and they and their character pretended to be good throughout the entire campaign. But that was something agreed with the DM, and when it was revealed, we all went, oh, you know, what a twist. And that's always incredibly interesting. Like, if you want to be a, um, a lying, evil person, like, the DM will probably facilitate that. Because um, DMs love a good traitor. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, that's that's an archetype, the, the spy yeah. of a uh, an in-party villain. Yeah. I mean, the other archetype, of course, is um, just, uh, well, it's, it's bad guys, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a lot of you just uh, singing that song from Bugs Malone. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a third one, I think, and that, th- this one is the hardest to pull off. Um, I don't know what you would call it uh, archetype, uh, ar- 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 archetypically. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm having difficulty with, with words, with worms. It is okay. Um, but, oh yeah, it's just the, uh, you either die a hero type villain. Mm. Or you, where, you yeah, or yeah. you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Um, where, like, this is maybe the deepest kind of player character villain, because if you pull this off, there's no denying that your character is a character. Like, they're an actual person with their own motivations within the fabric of the group. This is the the, the kind of... of player character where at the start of the game you have no intention whatsoever in like the direction of making this character become a villain yeah at all just 
kind of happens like you, that way. You, yeah. But but then you you run into like means by which your character will interact with the environment around them, which will suggest to you this is maybe some kind of factor that would cause a lapse in your character's moral judgment yeah. or cause some kind of moral or political um, position that would be at direct odds to the party in question over a period of time. Like, I'm trying to think of examples of this trope and all I'm getting is fucking Anakin Skywalker, who, who is a terrible example of it. Like, like is, that yeah. does happen to him. That totally does happen to him, but it's not a good representation of the story. It's like, the fall from grace will generally happen if a character is focused on one particular thing and their focus on that thing takes them away from the rest of the party. Yeah. This is totally doable. And in fact, I have seen this multiple times simultaneously in a certain D&D group that I could name after a particular event. Um, and that's... I hesitate to call that the best way because the other two ways are also good. Like, mm. those are legit things that can happen. But I think it's probably the hardest to pull off and the most impressive when you do. Mm. Because then you're actually thinking not just about like playing the game and, and dungeoneering and just having your character essentially be an extension of yourself for interacting with the game world. You're actually thinking about who your character is, what they want, what motivates them, what they care about, and whether those motivations are still in line with the rest of the party. Heroic antagonist and a villainous protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's totally a thing. I'm trying to think of examples of it. Um, I was going to think of D and D examples, but I mean there are plenty of comic books, video games, um, anime where you know you're seeing it from the perspective of the villain. Oh, Captain Hammer and um, Doctor Horrible. Yes, there we go. Doctor Horrible sing along blog is a really good example of that um and in a way a really good um because he's not really very evil towards he's not incredibly evil no and and captain hammer is like kind of a dick yeah but he still like tries to do evil things and captain hammer still tries to do heroic things yeah which is probably like the perspective you would play it from if that happened dr doom had a wonderful solo series called doom 2099 in the 90s it is fantastic um, and it's about Doctor Doom and him being Doctor Doom in the future, um, in the cyberpunk future. Although he fights against other bad guys in that, which is interesting. Well, there you go. I mean, the concept of an anti-hero also is uh, yeah a thing that I think quite a lot of of D and D characters might uh, fall into that that kind of category. Yeah. So. Uh, there's another kind of, of way... The way I've played a villain in the party would probably be closest to the spy way. Mm. Where basically what happened was my character, who was a bard, who was a stage magician, <laughs> which is a lot more difficult to make money off in a world where actual magic also exists. Yeah. But somehow he was managing it. He was a tiefling stage magician, but he disguised himself as a human in acts. Um, died. But the place where he died, which the party then ran away from because they were outnumbered and outgunned, had a doppelganger in it. And so the DM comes to me and he's like, hey, do you, do you, do you want to play this doppelganger? And I'm like, well, what would I have to do? And he's like, well, you know, you would have to pretend to be yourself. You can't really have your old powers, so you would have to find some way of like hiding that fact. 
and uh, you would have to betray the party and lead them into the trap. And I'm like, fuck yeah, I want to be a doppelganger. Yeah. Um, so I was like the doppelganger who was pretending to be him but couldn't cast any of his spells, so he's just being kind of useless in combat. And then I, I led them into this uh, enemy lair and then sneaked away uh, during my, my watch and came back with like a load of spiders and bugbears and stuff and tried to murder them all. I don't think I succeeded in killing a single one of them, which was unfortunate, but uh, I think once we left off, like... I changed, like shape shifted into another character, and they were completely like none the wiser. Yeah, fantastic. which was amusing. Um, of course, in terms of like characters forcibly being turned into villains, like through some corrupting influence, generally in that case, the the DM will take the character away from you, and they are yeah. they are considered dead until they're cured, yeah. if that is indeed possible. Uh, I've seen that happen as well. I know that that can happen in the Dresden Files role-playing game what a weird one to bring up at this time um but uh yeah that can happen yeah if you've read the dresden files you'd probably be able to guess under what circumstances that happens well there you go um Uh, oh i imagine it probably happens in the dragon age tabletop role-playing game as well uh to mages who yeah it must do yeah yeah like that that'll happen. I mean, D and D has an equivalent concept with uh, with warlocks and wild magic sorcerers. Yeah. I've not heard of that happening, but I presume yeah. from the flavor of the uh, of the characters that it, it must do at some point. Yeah. So, what else? Um, be careful with revealing the villains for villains' sake that you've allowed in your world, because you can very quickly fuck that up. Yeah. For instance, uh. You folks, Beth and the other people uh, mm-hmm. in her party, you've met Skedrenth. Yes. Who is the closest thing that Dawn Somber has to essentially Satan. Yeah. And uh, he was a pretty chill guy aside from that inconveniencing that he inconvenienced He was. He was, with. I mean... Can't, Which is I, not really what I wanted to go for, to be honest, and I might uh, try and retcon that particular aspect of his personality. Yeah, I mean, he was a bit of a dick, but... Other than that, fairly okay. Like, you know, I i mean, in a weird way, I found his interactions with Zetchiundite a little bit comical and quite endearing, which... Yeah, because, like, Zetchiundite's like, you know, this is my plane, so just sort of fuck you know, off out yeah, of it now. Go, yeah, go away. Like, get out of my room. Yeah. Of the two, Skedrenth is probably the more powerful, but because he's not in his own plane, he yeah, his powers are severely limited. So that might be why he switched over to just being sort of a comical character and that he couldn't really do a huge amount in somebody else's plane. Yeah. But even so, it's like, eh, I don't yeah. really want this guy he, to be a figure of yeah. fun given that he's the like the manifestation of neutral evil, at least. Yeah. I mean, you know, certain... In any universe, your in-universe certain should kind of be a big deal. Unless you're going for a good guy certain kind of thing. You could also go for good guy Satan, But yeah. no, Skedrenth is like basically... Skedrenth is the only one of the Meslinian gods who all cultures across Dawn Somber recognize as existing, even if they like don't recognize him as a god. Yeah. Because all of them are like, no, Skedrenth is is the Lord of Demons. Yeah. He controls like sixty to seventy percent of all the demons and devils in like the demon plane. He's like obviously the um, the Meslinians are like, he's a god, he's just a dick god, and. <laughs> The elves are like, no, he's a demon because the gods are dead. And the Varazians are like, you're both right. Like, there is no difference between gods and demons. They're the same thing. Yeah. And also, we're all terrified of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the thing about Skedrenth is that, like, if you don't have a good handle on characters like him, of what the well, essentially the avatar of evil should be, you're gonna fuck it up. Mm. So maybe it, it's good to have those people as gods because then they don't turn up a huge amount. Mm. But uh, I mean, I made a mistake. with gods, you can kind of get away with it sometimes because they're, in a way, they're abstract concepts made. Well, Real? that's 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 why they are good for like creating blank morality um, yeah. beings, just because they're that concept of morality made real. So obviously, everything they they create is a sort of agent of that cartoonishly yeah. forward concept. Just like um, what Shea Gorath in the Elder Scrolls. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this is like pantheons generally in. Western made-up ones for fiction generally, because even if you look at Norse mythology, like I've got, I could go on about the satanification of Loki forever and tell you how horribly wrong you are. Hmm. Um, the foils. This is another uh, thing. We should talk about the foils. I love the foils. The the foils are so. I've talked about um, the the city port of Tarn before on the podcast when Beth and company were playing the city port of Tarn, they played the Vesasak side of the, the quest, which meant that they got the foils, which is this um, sort of equivalent party. Uh, you know that episode of The Simpsons where, like, Bart is trying to save Itchy and Scratchy? Because <laughs> he accidentally... I knew this was going to be the one you talked about. <laughs> because, he, because he accidentally got the studio shut down by getting the original creator of the... Uh, of the um, uh, property like compensation and then like somebody who looks sort of like an off-model Bart actually does it instead yeah like this is that, that's what the the that, that, that's what the um, the foils are I believe it's happened to the characters from Scooby-Doo at least once as well but uh, the foils were a group of four adventurers um, there was a tiefling fighter mm-hmm. an elf ranger who deal wielded a Halfling bard and an orc warlock who were supposed to be like the the weird foils to you guys. Yeah. Um, and they were the the Linalesian group. Yeah. And they were antagonists, but they were not bad not guys. Bad like they people. genuinely believed that what they were doing was was just and right and good. I mean, judging by the amount of people that Jay's eaten, I I would say that they're actually probably morally much more good. I mean, we have a pirate on our team. Yeah, spider. I mean, she's an anti-slavery pirate, but she's still a pirate. It's true, yeah. Yeah, you have a pirate, a were spider, a potential terrorist, and Silas. <laughs> Silas. <laughs> I mean, it's. Oh no, you were the bad guys all along. But uh, very. It was very interesting because again, you had that. You know, when a bard fights a bard, and at the garden party, there was this showdown where we played our instruments at each other antagonistically. Um, it was very amusing. Yeah, and I, I think even now, Jay's sort of still kind of like trying to start this friendly rivalry. I ran on Cole. Yes. Tying villains into the personal stories of player characters. That is a thing you can do, and indeed I believe that it is a thing that, if possible, you should do. Mm, um, of- at least once, because that story is already written for you like you can slot that villain in and then suddenly you have an excellent reason why that villain exists why they're doing what they're doing and why the party are concerned with them at all and it 
it will also help, I think, especially if you have a player who doesn't get the spotlight very often because maybe their player's a bit more shy or the character's a bit more 2D than others. Um, to give that player room to, for, for growth and development as well and give that... I mean, obviously, like, try and... Try and gauge wh- wh- whether that would go down well. Yeah, if you yeah. have like a really, really nervous new player, yeah. then giving them their own villain who's focused on ending them specifically might not be yeah, but, I the mean, best if, idea. If it's something they've came up with themselves, like, oh, my parents were killed in a back alley by this man and I never found out who he was. And then, surprise, you introduce them as a character. It's like, ah, oh, I must get revenge on my parents. For, for, for my parents. <laughs> for my parents, not on my parents. Although... Also a good motivation if their parents weren't very nice people. Mm, true. Um, so that was what we did with uh, with Iron and Cole, yeah. who was uh, Marion's mother's first mate. Yeah. And who has turned turned against her and uh, and, and wanted to, to kill her because he was in the service of Galliena. Mm. And as soon as this dude turns up, we're like, okay, well, this is the reason why he's here. And he wants this thing, and the reason he knows Marion has it is because he has some connection to her past. Yeah. So that's a really good way to like put a villain into your uh, into your setting without too much work, and it also like provides immediate relevance to the players, yeah. which is important, I think. I think variety in your villains is important yeah. because. If you have the same villain or proxies for the same villain just doing the same thing over and over again, that's quickly going to become boring for your players, and it also means that they're not going to pay a huge amount of attention to any particular villain. Mm. A good way to differentiate your villains is to have them be very physically different and have different abilities, Mm. as well as like having different motivations. That's basically what comic books do. The Riddler, very different from the Joker. The Joker, very different from Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze, very different from Catwoman. It is for this exact reason that I asked Beth to be on the podcast in the first place, because <laughs> of her extensive knowledge yeah. of the way that comic books work. Anyway, we seem like we're kind of just rambling now. Yeah. So House of Bards is filmed before a dead studio audience. <laughs> uh, the uh, Your hosts were Alex. And Beth. The music was by Kevin MacLeod. And the cover art was by, I guess, whoever did the production stills for the 1960s Adam West Batman TV show. Could it have been Warner Brothers? Have they owned Batman I, that long? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, in any case, this image is in the public domain, uh, which obviously it would have to be if we're using it. Yeah. So uh, please don't come after us, whoever owns this IP now, yeah. because uh, you snooze, you lose. Yep. There's no copyright on that image. Yep. Any other image of these characters that we use uh, probably does have copyright on it, in which case, please do come and, and, and get us. Yeah. But uh, no, this one in particular yeah. is absolutely fine. Yeah, and if you do challenge us, I fight. I'm going to. We vote trial by combat and we will fight Dandidio to the death. Wow, that's, that's, that's another <laughs> person that, that Beth is going to fight yeah. on top of literally Shakespeare. Literally Shakespeare, Dandidio. Yeah. Probably, probably Rob Liefeld, come at me. Come at me. I honestly would not begrudge you fighting Rob Liefeld. That's that's <laughs> entirely reasonable to me. I mean, I personally think... I've said this before, Shakespeare would kick my ass, right? Cause he... You'd have to fight smart to, to deal with Shakespeare. Yeah. I think that you could win, but only if you're uh, only if you're on the ball all the way. Yeah, I, I think Dan Didio... I feel like Dan Didio probably like, walks around with like a utility belt like Batman. I think... He... 
I think you know that might be difficult. Um, I have absolutely, I have every confidence in your ability to kick Rob Liefeld's ass. I think I could do um, that. Yeah. I worry about Warner Brothers lawyers because there might be a lot of them at once. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, be careful there. <laughs> It will. It'd be like that scene in Kill Bill, except the Crazy Eight yeah, are all um Warner Brothers lawyers, and they're all like spouting like legal jargon at me, and I'm just like dodging out of the way, like I didn't go to law school. Back off. I didn't see Kill Bill. You didn't either. see Kill Bill. That's okay. I don't watch films a lot, so there's a whole like load of like films just classic cinema that i haven't watched if you have any films to recommend to alex to watch to... i probably won't watch you them but you got, you're entirely free to recommend them to me my twitter is cleaver crumish that is uh spelt clever crumb like a crumb of bread ish uh and that is my tumblr as well and beth if you have any recommendations for who i should fight my uh, twitter is at baroness bamf and that's also my tumblr don't recommend people for me to fight on tumblr um just Talk to yeah. me on t- talk to me normally on Tumblr, but yeah, uh, and I think that should be everything. Um, so I guess I'll talk to you next week, Alex, and I hope they all listen to us next week as well. Hopefully, I won't. Hopefully, I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week. I won't. Hopefully, I won't have lost my fight with Dan Didio and all of Warner Brothers lawyers. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any suggestions as to what subjects we could cover on the podcast, then uh, feel free to leave a comment on our Twitters, on our Tumblrs, in the hashtag, uh, in the comments below um, the video version. That's that's cool as well. I get email uh, notifications for those, so I will see your comment. And I will probably pass it on to Beth if it's something pertaining to Beth. Although, as we've just mentioned, you could contact Beth directly and cut out the middleman. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, of ways that you can reach us to talk about this podcast and the stuff that we do and the uh, the games that we run. So have a nice one, and uh, we will see you next week. Next week. Bye. Bye. Look, if it's going to be inconvenient for you to fight Dan Didio and all of Warner Brothers' lawyers in between us recording episodes of the podcast, then I just don't think it's an appropriate use of your time. Um, I mean, it, it really depends on where the fight's going to be scheduled. Um, what if you use your uh, your powers of trickery to make Dan Didio fight Warner Brothers' oh, lawyers? Oh, that would be good. That solves two problems. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're overthinking this. We're over- yeah.